Thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, and thank you for joining me for the first of four conversations on American antitrust law and enforcement. You know, I love political cartoons, the ability to summarize complex political debate in a simple drawing with a few words of caption is a gift I wish I possessed. But alas, I am but a mere admirer. And one of my favorites is the 1889 cartoon Bosses of the Senate by Thomas Kepler. It depicts the United States Senate in diminutive form, dominatingly leered over by a collection of corpulent robber barons, variously labeled Copper Trust, Sugar Trust, Oil Trust. There's even a paper bag trust. These were the monopolists at the height of America's first Gilded Age. Today, in what my colleague Bruce Meltman has dubbed the New Gilded Age, we're less concerned with cornered markets in copper, sugar, and paper bags than data, app stores, and online marketplaces. In fact, you could simply relabel those robber barons in Kepler's cartoon, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, to make it completely relevant to a modern reader 130 years later. Attempts to contain the excesses of capitalism and clip the wings of market-dominant companies are as old as free market economics itself. In fact, the two main laws still used today to guide America's antitrust regulation are the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Antitrust Act, enacted in 1890 and 1914, respectively. 21st century America is vastly different in so many ways, but so many of the issues we grapple with remain the same. Nowhere is that more true in a political sense than antitrust law and enforcement. Because at the heart of antitrust is the American consumer experience. And what's more important than that? The government breakup of monolith companies Standard Oil and AT&T, the attempted breakup of Microsoft, they have reverberations we can see and feel to this day. The second law of thermodynamics says that order always trends to disorder over time. But the first law of capitalism must be that market power, left unchecked, tends to concentrate over time. And so it has. In this second decade of the 21st century, and so antitrust is receiving renewed attention and thought on how the government ought to approach particularly these massive corporations, big tech, that control so much of how we interact with one another and how the world interacts with us. And that's what I hope to explore in this four-part series on 14th and G on American Antitrust. And I could not have anyone better to kick this series off than my guest today. Macon Del Rahim was Assistant Attorney General leading the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department from 2017 to just this past January. His leadership of the Antitrust Division came at a time of enormous change in Americans' relationship with technology and with the companies that provide it. Not his first tour of duty at justice, he has spent decades in the public and private practice of antitrust, and I believe is one of the most consequential actors ever in the field. Macon Delrahim, welcome to 14th and G. Dean, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that generous introduction as well. Absolutely. It's well-deserved. Macon, you've spoken about the need to get back to first principles on antitrust, particularly as we confront these massive corporations that play such an outsized role in our daily lives. The government's really at the beginning stages of lawsuits you originated against Google and Facebook last fall. I'm wondering, what is the big picture you keep in mind on the enforcement side of antitrust? Well, the most important I think big picture is to realize what antitrust is and what it is not. 
you know, antitrust in effect is law enforcement. It's not a regulation. It's not a tool to prescribe how businesses operate or how big they should become or what they should, should not do, but allow those to the forces of the market. But what it does do, it polices the marketplace by encouraging competitive markets that as a result require less government regulation and intervention, but making sure that there isn't you know, unfair playing field. And ultimately, that's the goal of antitrust. And it's had pretty enormous staying power over the years. It has. Uh, you, you've often referred to the great Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson, uh, particularly his caution to American business in 1937 that they either accept the regulated competition of antitrust law or prepare for the only probable alternative, outright government control. You've restated that maxim for our current age. It seems uh, big tech does a very good job of offending both sides. They're very easy to attack, but they do deliver efficiencies. Uh, They do enable a way of life millions of people enjoy. And with so much happening now uh, on the Hill at DOJ and the FTC, how do policymakers both ensure that robust competition but not kill the proverbial goose laying the golden eggs? That's, you know, the... I would hesitate to say that's the $64 million question because it's probably billions of dollars of questions. <laughs> um, but that, that is a, that's really important. I think how we address, the, you know, as, as my friend Tim Wu called it, the curse of bigness, the, the digital markets, and you have a handful of players that have such enormous market power that touch every aspect of all of our lives. What they do is, is gotten a lot of attention. The response is, you know, has antitrust been, you know, the enforcers that they've been asleep at the switch the last few decades as some of these companies have grown, whether it's been merger enforcement or just monopolization enforcement of the antitrust laws? Uh, or are the, do these markets require a different set of rules? And that's something that Congress is grappling with. The most important thing is making sure that what we do is don't do not change the incentives for risk investment, R&D and innovation, because ultimately it is innovation that provides the best benefit for consumers, society and the marketplace. That's the greatest form of competition that we have is the dynamic form of competition. It's not. And by that, I mean. You know, you don't want to just take a look at snapshot of society today. Let's go back to the Motorola Razor phone and make sure that, you know, all of our policies are directed to the Razor phone being 5% cheaper. That doesn't benefit consumers. You You also want to have the innovation policy and environment to allow for the next smartphone, you know, the Apple iPhone to uh, come onto the market because imagine the enormous benefits that consumers have had from the advent of better and faster smartphones over the Razor phone than just a 5% price decrease. Right. When you get into big tech and, and, and these questions of these companies, one of the greatest difficulties in pursuing antitrust enforcement, it seems, have been, has been this demonstration of consumer harm. I mean, you just ticked off a lot of the Uh, a lot of the benefits that uh, that Americans have derived. But in traditional antitrust, I mean, take the standard oil example. They've got 90% of the petroleum market. 
They can charge me much higher prices for gas uh, than when Chevron, Exxon, and Texaco all have to compete for my business. But making my Facebook account is free. My Gmail is free. I pay for Amazon Prime, but I don't have to. I can access their platform for free. I can buy their, their private label products. Whatever the market power of these companies, I'm getting tons of free services and cheaper goods. So what is the harm to consumers? So one of the big misconceptions in the, in the debate and about antitrust law is that antitrust and the consumer welfare standard only deal with the price effects of various conduct by the business community. By that, I mean, if you can't show a price increase, then there is no anti-competitive harm. And therefore, if you have you know, free products out there, you cannot possibly imagine anti-competitive harm and therefore a violation of the antitrust laws. The antitrust laws really are focused on the harm to competition and the competitive process itself. Now, it could manifest itself in price increases, and a lot of case law has been about price increases because it's the most easily quantifiable, and that's what the agencies have brought over the years. But it also involves a, a decrease in innovation, a decrease in quality and quantity and choice for the consumer. Let's go back to you know 20 years from now, and there was the Justice Department's lawsuit against Microsoft. And Microsoft was, you know, had a, had, a, had a pretty big market share of operating systems. The desktop, I think it was, you know, north of 90%. And what they had done, you know, we were right at the advent of the, uh, of what we now t- today call the internet, but with the browser was coming into place. And you had the Netscape browser, which made it easier to serve the internet and have access to multiple websites. And Microsoft, you know, had the, Internet Explorer. The argument and what ended up, you know, being affirmed by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals was that Microsoft engaged in practices to maintain their market power in the operating system. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they did not want to lose that power and they had the, you know, kind of indirect network effects. The more computers had the Microsoft operating system, the more applications you would write to it because you immediately had the, you know, the benefit of 95% of the market. Why would you write to a different operating system? And that fed the, the, the maintenance of the power. The illegal harm wasn't so much that they had such market power. You know, that was, you know, could have been attributed to a superior product, better product, and also network effects. The harm was the browser was now going to be a threat, a competitive threat, because now you can write applications to the browser rather than the operating system. And all of a sudden, computers and consumers will become agnostic to what operating system they had. So if I wanted to come up with a new, let's say, word processing software or database software, I could write it to the browser and it could be read on any computer. And what they did was a number of, you know, exclusive contracts. They, uh, you know, polluted Java and a number of other actions throughout that that was uh, evidence shown in the case. It was really not so much the fact that they had market share. It was that they were illegally trying to maintain it and not allow competition to win. Right. 
You know, Macon, when you look back, and I believe that was uh, I believe that was Judge Penfield Jackson that that wrote the original Microsoft opinion. It did not end up, though, it had potential to be a, a sort of a breakup case along the lines of Standard Oil or AT and T. When you look back on that case and what has happened since, just in terms of browser competition, I'm on Google Chrome. I think you're on Firefox. Do you think that case was ahead of its time or what did the technology just move beyond it too quickly? Well, the technology certainly advanced. I don't think anybody would would make the argument that somehow Judge Jackson knew where the internet was going. I don't think anybody really knew. My guess is Mr. Gates himself probably had, had no idea that we would be where we are today, especially with the development of mobile and some of the social media developments that have gone on. The case... You know, I think you could you could criticize, and the D.C. Circuit certainly did, some of the approaches to the breakup, and it set some standards about when you do that. And frankly, I don't know if that type of breakup that was anticipated by the district court would have led to pro-competitive effects. It has to be narrowly tailored to the harm that was found. And so because software is a different animal, than you know railroads and and telephone companies and oil fields that that type of remedy we have to make sure is not going to do more consumer harm than help the competitive process and that that's the really important part you know i've i have uh, questioned whether or not antitrust is the most efficient way to address some of the fast moving harms that right. could be posed by the digital markets and that's, an, that's something I think really important for this Congress as they consider the antitrust laws to think about, are there other forms of law enforcement? You've actually proposed a, uh, a digital markets uh, regulation board. A rulemaking board. Yeah. So, and that comes with all the cautions of creating a new regulatory framework. I do not believe for all the reasons that I'm very much against uh, unnecessary government regulation and a big believer in policing the competitive free markets. I don't believe creating like another FCC for the digital markets is good policy or that we should go there. I do believe that you can have other models where a public private board can make rules. Why? Because they're the most knowledgeable about the industry and the types of business practices and the technology, but you have public members involved. And then those rules would be proposed to a government agency who will have to review them before issuing them. And what that avoids is, you know, 10 years, 20 years. I mean, you know, we have media ownership rules from the FCC. I remember when I was the appellate deputy, the antitrust division in 2003, four, that case came up. And then, lo and behold, just last year, the case came right back up. I think it was called Prometheus and went up to the Supreme Court, went back down, goes to the FCC, uh, goes through the D.C. Circuit, back up. And so, you know, 17 years later, we still have litigation over a proposed rule to go through. Right. Uh, that's just, you know, technology and innovation happen much faster. Uh, the Google case is one that without commenting on the case, just as a matter of fact, the trial is now set for September, 2023. Right. That's after 
year and a half of investigation, a lot of pretrial work, and that's just the trial on liability. Then you're going to have to have, you know, uh, perhaps a trial or hearings on what the remedy should be. Then you're going to have appeals to the D.C. Circuit, perhaps. Then you could go to the Supreme Court. It might be seven, eight, nine years before we even know what's going on. I don't need to tell you where technology is going to be headed just in the next two years, let alone nine years. Well, and that sort of abuse or of, of market position for any competitive purposes is one side of the coin. The other big focus of antitrust enforcement is, is in the mergers and acquisition space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you've, you've got a sort of a more straightforward case, I think, where a large company buys out a main competitor or a group of competing companies uh, and, the, and the calculation there of market concentration and what's anti-competitive. Now we see big tech and others buying up much smaller companies, nascent competitors who might be a threat to their future business. You brought a much publicized action against Visa and their acquisition of an online payment processor called Plaid, which was probably the first time almost anyone heard of Plaid. Is this nascent competitor acquisition a new phenomenon or is this something we've seen before? So, you know, I think we are seeing the the amount of innovation that's happening, particularly in the fintech world. And it's such a highly regulated industry that incumbents have a lot of power and staying power. You know, a lot of times some of our most anti-competitive forces are government regulations that keep innovation from from being adopted. But we're seeing more of that in that particular industry. But in the past, you know, you've had you've had innovation. You know, you had innovation in telephony, the way phone companies were able, you know, back in the 50s and then later in the 70s and 80s with microwave communications. So you've had at different stages. We're seeing more of it now, just just uh, just a pace of innovation. And so I thought it was really important for us to be vigilant, particularly in the fintech world, to allow for new payment systems, new banking mechanisms, uh, new ability for folks to do what they have been doing on um, you know, uh, stock market exchanges. There's new ways for consumers to access uh, the public markets and financial services that you want to be sure that the incumbents don't do that. In that particular case, we had a lot of good evidence that we cited in there about the motivation for that particular transaction. There, these are not easy cases because mm-hmm. there aren't that many that much precedent out there. But it's important for antitrust to be vigilant to to bring that. I also brought the case against Sabre's acquisition or attempted acquisition of Fair Logics, which was another industry with the airlines and and you know the mechanism by which we do reservations and other the services. Booking systems. Booking systems. And Fair Logics was an innovator that for ten years was trying to get in and brought a lot of new innovations that the airlines actually liked. And a number of airlines were prepared to be witnesses uh, and were witnesses for us at trial. Um, so, you know, we brought that case also in Delaware two years ago. But you're, you, we just have to be on top of it. Now, sometimes it's easy to be the Monday, Monday morning quarterback and look back at some acquisitions and say, well, you shouldn't have done that. And the one, you know, uh, uh, the poster child, obviously, is, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, what it became. And WhatsApp, Yeah. And Facebook. Seems like everyone wants a mulligan on that on that one. Well, 
Well, they do. And the question is, did the agencies miss something or did they not? Or was this a pattern? And I think, you know, the state AGs and the FTC investigation alleges, you know, more monopolization case uh, rather than, you know, a, a Section 7 merger violation case. But the interesting thing is, it's, you know, as a matter of policy, how far back should we look and how do you do the but for analysis? Would Instagram be what it is today had Facebook's you know, engineering and know-how not changed some of what it did? And, and that's what Facebook will tell you. These services were, yeah, they were, they were somewhat popular, but you know, we took them and, and made them what they are today. It's, it's, a hard, it's a really hard analysis to do. And Google, YouTube is another one. You know, did YouTube, you know, what, was it a nascent competitor or, you know, was it getting killed? Well, frankly, YouTube was, you know, there was a lot of evidence of uh, copyright infringement that was going on. Uh, so they probably would have been killed by some of the media content owners uh, had they not been bought by Google. But would, would YouTube be the product that it is today without the market power, uh, the, the engineering power, the ability, the search that Google brought to them. I, you know, that's a good question to ask. Well, Macon, let me sort of, let me take a little detour here on how that review is done when, when companies make acquisitions or seek to merge, because for antitrust, both the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission have jurisdiction for review, but which agency gets the review seems to be a pretty opaque determination. And it does make a big difference. I mean, in DOJ, the appeals process can be had in the federal court system, the FTC has their own internal appeals process uh, to get to a final determination. I know Senator Mike Lee, uh, who is the lead Republican on the antitrust subcommittee, uh, has called this dual system inefficient. He's proposed legislation to streamline it. Why do we have two agencies performing the same discrete function of M&A review? And can you give us some enlightenment on, on how it is decided who gets to review which case? Boy, not to open up an enormous can of worms. Well, it's it, it could be, you know, we could uh, get into the history of it. So it was a historical accident. You know, so the, the Sherman Act was enacted in 1890. And, and then you had the assistant to the attorney general, Len Later, the assistant attorney general in the antitrust division created in the 30s. And uh, then with the passage of the FTC Act and creation it was after, you know, the, the Sherman Act was interpreted by the Supreme Court to not, you know, not, not criminalize all contracts as the actual statute says, any contract and restraint of trade. But it's only those that were unreasonable in the Standard Oil case. So what is unreasonable and what's reasonable? So the, the idea was we're going to create a commission of, you know, five learned folks, you know, that is going to study and tell us what those are. And then over time, uh, you know, more and more authorities were granted to both agencies, but the FTCs became also, a, you know, for lack of a better word, a merger regulator. Uh, and then the responsibilities right. was split between the two, except for certain sectors like banking, like the uh, telecom, some financial services, transportation, all of those go to the Department of Justice. The rest were, you know, the law was silent about which agency got to do it. So over the last 80 or so years, the two agencies have an agreement between the two that, that they try to, as best as they can, based on 
expertise. Uh, one agency will review a particular industry, the other one does. Of course, when you have new agencies coming, like when Google acquired DoubleClick, it took 29 days of a statutory max of 30 days of, for the first review. It took 29 days just for the two agencies to decide which agency gets to review it. <laughs> is, this a is this a negotiation between the agencies? Like, I Sadly, want this. it is. Yeah. Yes, sadly, okay. it is. And then there's agreements. And then, of course, every agreement has what is a social media merger? What is a health care insurance merger? What if the merger is vertical and it has some aspects of it? So the two agree, both former Chairman Simons and I, when we testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, we both agreed that you're designing a system, you would not design it with two agencies. And in fact, China, which had three agencies when they brought in their new antitrust regime in 2008, just two years ago, they reformed their system and about a year ago, they put them all into one agency. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Senator Lee's proposal says. You know, I don't think, I think there's a lot of antitrust work and I'm a big advocate for more resources for both right. agencies. But I think without losing a single job, you could combine both agencies and have, you know, look, you, you've had problems going back to Microsoft where you had a 2-2 tie of the commissioners which means that they can't move forward. Or sometimes you have very high profile investigations where one or two commissioners dissent and in fact, you know, publicly oppose the same transaction of the agency and the same uh, law enforcement action of the same agency. And it's an odd situation for law enforcement. And um, I think, you know, if you're going to do that, there needs to be some reforms uh, in the future. And this is, you know, I've always said back when I first went into the job, this isn't about, you know, gaining more power. It was if Congress decided to combine the both agencies, I would have happily resigned the next day. But that was I think it's better for the economy. And there's two different legal standards for seeking an injunction. If your merger goes to the FTC, it's a different legal standard. And if it goes to the Justice Department, a different legal standard when you go to court to seek an injunction. That's not the way to be running a transparent and predictable government agency. Well, Macon, speaking of China and additional resources, you've proposed the United States have antitrust field offices in Beijing and Brussels. You've also included states attorneys general in bringing some of these large cases. I'm curious why antitrust enforcement has moved beyond a singularly federal government function in your view. What do states bring to the table uh, when you bring an enforcement action? And what's the benefit to the U.S. of working with international regulators, maybe sometimes even opposed to American companies? There are both benefits and there's also inefficiencies in the overall system. But the system we have now, you have in the states – you have the federal agencies, you have two of them, then you've got, you know, 50 plus because you have territories that have uh, their own attorneys general, such as D.C. and Puerto Rico and others. Then you have the international bodies and there's no single agreed upon substantive standard for what is a violation of antitrust law. So you could have, you know, the same transaction reviewed by two different agencies uh, this is the subject of the course I teach at University of Pennsylvania, 
and mergers and acquisitions and the role of various governments. And it is fascinating when you have that, uh, just to add a little extra layer to it, and you, know, you also have specialized regulatory agencies. So you have a telecom merger or a transportation merger, but a telecom merger that's reviewed by the FCC, by the Justice Department, by the state AGs, and perhaps international bodies. And we're seeing more. So I used to joke that antitrust law has been our most successful export out of the United States the last, <laughs> you know, 30 or so years. Right. We've had, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago, we had, you know, we had about 20 antitrust agencies and maybe about three or four real authorities that, that focused uh, on actively enforcing. We have 140 antitrust agencies around the world now. Wow. And uh, more or less, all of them are getting more and more active, particularly in the in the digital area. So you have, you know, Australia, UK, the whole EU as a, you know, these are all, you know, substantive antitrust agencies with a lot of capabilities, but each of them could make decisions that could diverge from a decision of a U.S. agency. So you work with them a lot of times because, you know, as these companies are more and more global, they are subject to the jurisdictions of those countries. And you want to minimize the burdens as much as you can and help each other. Because ultimately, ultimately, all of our citizens, you know, when you have a culture of competition, everybody benefits and you want to get it right. And so the agencies want to help each other to make sure that they're not making the wrong decision, which if you make the wrong decision, you could actually limit competition, you could limit markets, and you could limit innovation, which isn't good for anyone. Right. Well, Macon Del Rahim, this is a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you helping me kick off this series. Uh, a lot going on in this space. I hope you'll come back and uh, join me again to break it all down. But Macon Del Rahim, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Dean, thank you so much for having me. Very much enjoyed it. Uh, certainly a, a topic that will continue over the coming months and probably years before we are able to make any reforms to improve the system. Thank you.